Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is a former editor of The Nation magazine, Victor Navasky. He is author of a new book, The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power. In the book, he asks, what accounts for the supercharged outrage of those affronted by cartoons and caricatures? And what accounts for the outsized political influence of cartoonists around the world? He says this uh, book began uh, as he studied the outrage in 2005 of the uh, caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad in a Danish magazine. He takes us through a tour of some of the great political cartoonists in the world and uh, asks what gives the cartoons their power. Victor Navasky, my guest, he's former editor and publisher of The Nation, former editor of New York Times Books and Magazines, after the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As a former editor of the New York Times Magazine and longtime editor of The Nation, Victor Navasky knows just how transformative and incendiary cartoons can be. And in his new book, The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power, Victor Navasky uh, guides readers through some of the greatest uh, cartoons ever created, and he recounts how cartoonists and caricaturists have been censored, threatened, incarcerated, even murdered for their art. His central question, what makes this art form often dismissed as trivial, so uniquely poised to affect our minds and our hearts. He writes in his introduction, what accounts for the supercharged outrage of those affronted by cartoons and caricaturists? What makes political caricature uh, in particular so incendiary? Whence does it derive its power? And uh, Victor Navasky, as we said, a former editor of the, uh, uh, of the nation, and uh, currently he's uh, teaching at uh, Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. He'll be in Salt Lake City on uh, Friday, June 28th to uh, sign his book. That's at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. Victor Navasky, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Well, it's good to talk with you, Tom. Thank you for uh, being with us. I'd like to start with, you say uh, this. Uh, you've been around cartoonists uh, for a long, long time, and in fact, uh, you know, uh, have known uh, many of the cartoonists that, uh, that you recount in this book, but uh, you say that it was the outrage that we all remember from uh, the publication in a, in a Danish newspaper of uh, a dozen cartoons or so depicting the Prophet Muhammad it caused this outrage. Uh, it deaths around the world even. The cartoonists had to go into hiding. Uh, this particular incident uh, got you thinking about, about this as an art form. Well, you know, the Danish Muhammads were a special case. The, as you say, the cartoonists had to go into hiding. A big price was put on their heads, and hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets. People were killed, people were injured, embassies shut down, goods were boycotted, etc., etc. It turns out, however, when you look into it, that most of the people who protested never saw the cartoons in question, that two imams were dispatched across the Muslim world with pictures of, ostensibly with pictures of the cartoons that were done in the newspaper, one of which showed Muhammad with a turban, with a bomb were going out of his turban. But they also included cartoons that were never shown, uh, were not part of the newspaper. For example, cartoons showing Muhammad's genitals. So people got outraged uh, because of the idea of it. 
So my own sense is that it is the the case of the Danish Mohammeds is like a desecration. Uh, it's like the Ku Klux Klan burning a, a cross on your lawn. The very fact of it is the um, trans, is the transgressive thing rather than seeing the drawing as in a cartoon, although the fact that it's an image that was transgressed is important, just as in the Old Testament, no graven images. Uh, so, so this is interesting. Uh, probably the majority, the vast majority of the people who were outraged never saw the actual cartoons. That's right. It was, But it was the idea that that you were defacing this religious figure in a negative way that upset people. And I, I've, I've maybe representative of a lot of people. I heard about it. I've never seen the cartoons. What yes, it, and in the, interestingly, in, in the, at the time that it happened, the New York Times wrote an editorial saying that, explaining why it was not pu- republishing the cartoons. And the, the reason they gave was that they're easy to describe and besides, you can find them on the Internet. And at the time, I didn't accept that explanation because I, um, it seemed to me that you have to, to experience a cartoon or a caricature to really get its full statement. But, um, and so that was an insufficient explanation for not republishing them. On the other hand, if, when it came time for my publisher, Knopf, and and I to decide whether to put them in the book, uh, I ended up believing that it was an act of, it would be an act of hubris on my part to insist that they go in if the publisher was worried that people would, um, uh, that it would put the lives of booksellers at risk because angry, uh, radical Muslims would, would, uh, ex- put an explosive in that store or that it would make sales difficult, impossible to difficult because Amazon would be afraid to carry it. And um, so I ended up doing two things. I, I ended up using a cartoon, not one of the originals, but a much better cartoon by a cartoonist for Le Mans called Plantu. And what it showed was a big hand and a crayon and and a pen, and the pen was writing, I must not draw Muhammad, I must not draw Muhammad, I must not draw Muhammad. And it said it a hundred times, and by the time he was finished, he had drawn a caricature of Muhammad. So it was the ultimate comment on the issue. At the same time, I listed all of the reasons why one might decide not to publish them. One of them being, two of them being the ones I've already mentioned that, that you know, you, you're putting other people's lives at risk. It could interfere with sales. A third one being you can find them on the Internet anyway. A fourth one being that uh, they weren't very, very good cartoons and the Plantu cartoon was much better. And a fifth one being that you don't uh, go out of your way to insult minorities that are offended by these things. And and then I put I listed each of these, and then finally I listed the final thing, and I said, you decide. But the last choice was all of the above, and the reason was all of the above. So, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you you talk about it in the book a little bit. Uh, I think this is. Uh, um, I can't remember which cartoonist this was, but he talks about. 
uh, how you have to deal in stereotypes. That's part of cartooning. But I guess if you say you're trying to depict racism, it's very hard to walk that line and deal in stereotypes people can understand because that's what you do as a cartoonist, but not fall, fall into that trap of, of racism. Yes, and, and I deal with that issue in the art of controversy in the following ways. I use, among others, the uh, Nazi magazine Der Sturmer, which was published in the years in the run-up to the Holocaust and World War II. And I, uh, uh, Der Sturmer ran on its front page in every issue. It was a weekly magazine, a, a caricature, a, a, a an anti-Semitic portrait of Jews. And uh, it set the image of the Jew in Germany for those years. And what's interesting about that to me is, among other things, is that Jules Stryker, who was the publisher of Der Sturmer, was the only person at Nuremberg who was sentenced to death. He was hanged and then cremated, uh, who was not a member of Hitler's high command. Uh, but they understood the power of these cartoons as well at that at that period. But how you, uh, on the other hand, American cartoonist, a great cartoonist named Doug Marlette, was criticized for drawing um, a one of the Israeli leaders with a big nose, and his answer was, he has a big nose. So how do you, so how do you draw people without reinforcing the stereotypes of them and Cartoonists are working off of stereotypes in many cases, and whenever they do a caricature, certainly, and um, and that's a uh, where you draw the line is a is a critical and interesting question to which there is no easy answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested, and in, you're interested throughout the book, uh, what uh, counts for the the power in uh, in cartoons and, and character. There is definitely a power. Uh, in it. Um, oh, yes. You know, I think um, to take the case of caricature, one of the things that is, is I think, at work there is that if you don't like a, a story in a newspaper or an editorial in a newspaper, you can write a letter to the editor. And if you don't literally write a letter to the editor, you can write the letter to the editor in your mind, or you can tell people what you think is wrong with it. In the case of, there is no such thing as a cartoon to the editor or a caricature to the editor <laughs> to answer a cartoon or a caricature. And uh, so people feel, I think, in the face of that impotent. And, uh, the, the, and then, by definition, a caricature is unfair. It's an exaggeration. It's a, it can be a grotesque exaggeration. And, and the combination of it being unfair and you're having no way to answer it increases your your anger and your sense of, of uh, being offended by it, even if it's not about you, if it's someone you identify with. And then to top it all off, there may be the suspicion that the cartoonist has actually gotten to the real you, that underneath this unfair exaggeration, they have penetrated to a truth about what's going on there. Uh, some critic once said that, you know, beauty is the achievement of the perfect form and and caricature is the perfect deformity. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Well, there, there's an example uh, you, you have in the book. Um, boss Tweed, you know, the historical figure, um, a boss of a political mach- machine, was caricatured by Thomas Nast, the famous uh, cartoonist. And, and Boss Tweed is said to have said, uh, yeah, I don't care about the words, but my constituents can't read, and uh, can't we get the, those Nast cartoons uh, out of there? He called them those damn cartoons. <laughs> he said, get rid of those damn pictures. Yes. Uh, so illustrating the, the, the power of pictures. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Nast, I think, also gave us the, the donkey and the elephant. He gave the Democrats the donkey, he gave the Republicans the elephant, and he gave us all Santa Claus as a roly-poly, happy figure with a white beard. So these, uh, not icon- only comment. And, but that's another thing about, about these uh, caricatures and cartoons, is that when they work, they not only have this immediate power, they can live on long, they're indelible. They live on long past their initial creation. And this can be true not just about the elephant and the donkey, which are funny, but when David Levine did LBJ showing his appendectomy scar in the shape of Vietnam, that's now part of history, and it's in the history books. Nixon's five o'clock shadow, McCarthy with his tar brush, which were inventions of her block, are, are all part of that same phenomenon. So they're enduring in that way. They endure, yeah. yes. If you just joined us, we're talking with Victor Navasky. He is author of a new book, uh, The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power. He got uh, interested in uh, what, what gives cartoons and caricatures their power. We're talking about that on the program today. We'll ask him uh, some of his favorite political cartoons and uh, cartoonists. Uh, Victor Navasky is former editor of New York Times Magazine and longtime editor of The Nation, and he is now a professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and uh, he'll be uh, signing this book, The Art of Controversy, at the King's English Bookshop. It's on Friday, June 28th, 7 p.m., King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. We're going to take a brief break. When you come back, uh, we'll uh, get Mr. Navasky to recount some of his favorite cartoonists and cartoons Let's go talk about this quote from Ralph Steadman, cartoonist. He says, cartooning is a form of assassination. More after the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by Black Pearl Asian Bistro and Sushi in North Logan. Serving traditional Chinese dishes, a taste of Thai, nigiri, sushi, and sashimi. Open seven days a week. Information at 435-750-0888. And also by USU Human Resources. Waste not. Do not overwater your grass. If the grass bounces back a few steps later, then things are just fine. If your footprints stay halfway or all the way down, then it's time to drag out the hose. Though we suggest checking to see if rain is in the forecast first. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org/publicworks. car talk last week? It's well, curious that's what I thought. breaks are like that. I never thought of it until this very moment. I never thought of much until... No. <laughs> I don't usually think of anything until I hear myself say it. <laughs> and then I say, you know, that's bull. <laughs> for more well-reasoned car advice, join us this week for Car Talk. Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking with Victor Navasky, author of The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power. And he uh, recounts how cartoonists and caricaturists have been censored, threatened, incarcerated, even murdered. And just the, the mere idea of a cartoon can uh, cause murder. Hundreds were, uh, were killed uh, in the aftermath of 2005, a Danish newspaper uh, publication of uh, cartoons depicting the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, we're talking about uh, political power, lasting power from uh, cartoons, what gives them their power. Uh, Victor Navasky is a longtime editor of The Nation, and he's currently a professor in the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. He'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Friday, June 28th, signing his book. That's It begins at 7 p.m. Uh, the quote I uh, gave our listeners before the break, very interesting uh, to me, uh, Professor Navasky, Ralph Stedman's quote, cartooning is a form of assassination. We'll talk about that a bit. Yes, Ralph Stedman, who is quite articulate about it, also said something very interesting. He said that what a cartoon is, is what you can't say in words. That you can only say it as a picture. Sometimes words are part of the picture. But it's what you can't express through traditional um, words and sentences and grammar. And um, that observation, which I totally believe, I got very self-conscious in writing this book because I was using words to explain something that you can't explain in words. And it's one of the reasons that And what I ended up doing was showing a a cartoon by the great New Yorker uh, cartoonist William Steinberg, which which I'm not going to try to explain in words, but it shows someone drawing uh, a line that that never ends. It keeps going inward, and uh, it it sort of says that you can't explain it except in a picture. Stedman, this is interesting. Um, what this does emotionally, Stedman said that he. I don't remember exactly what the quote is, but he had antipathy, at least, toward Ronald Reagan, <laughs> which he sort of, I don't know, he, he, he was able to express and then get out there uh, through cartoons. Yeah, well, what he said was he wanted to assassinate him until he had done it visually, and that he felt he had damaged him, not not physically, but but psychologically he had gotten to him by drawing the picture, and then he felt more kindly towards him. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, I think it's David Lowe. Uh, he, he had uh, many cartoons depicting Hitler, and apparently these just drove Hitler crazy. Yes, every time one of his cartoons came out, uh, he was a great British cartoonist, and frequently he did Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin. But every time one came out that, that involved Hitler... Hitler would call a meeting of his general staff. He would go into a deep frenzy. Fevers would mount, and he would get more and more agitated, and the whole German system would come to a stop. And uh, eventually they banned the paper from Germany, and Lord Halifax, the British foreign secretary, went to visit Garbels, the head of propaganda in, in Germany, to ask what they could do to get the paper unbanned and he said fire low that's what you can do and low himself if you look at those pictures they did not show hitler to be this monster uh, going through blood and uh this world beater 
Uh, Lowe had a theory about that. He said, when you do that, when you show these dictators to be these bloody monsters who are responsible for millions of deaths and you show it in the picture, he said it's it flatters their vanity. They like to think of themselves as that powerful. He said what they don't like is to think of themselves as an ass, as a fool, as a jerk. And that's what his cartoons did. It's kind of a similar idea, isn't it, to uh, Charlie Chaplin's uh, was the great dictator, um, where he where he portrays Hitler as sort of in a mundane way. Who is that? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin, his... Oh, yes. Well, Chaplin, of course, uh, did capture that exactly uh, in in his movie about Hitler, mm-hmm. that that he sh- he showed it. It's not just mundane. It's it's uh, something of a fool, and uh, and that's what Lowe achieved as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back uh, a bit and and talk about um, this is not meant to be exhaustive. This book, but uh, you talk about, for example, Martin Luther, his. His posters, you you could you could fit into this category. Well, Martin Luther understood the power of of the image, and he got at his message in posters. And I think there was a time when when, as as, um, Nash said about Tweed, that his constituents couldn't read. There there was it was a class phenomenon. The masses of people could all understand a picture, whether or not they could read. And so it so class became very important then and uh but it wasn't just I think that it was even a great artist like Daumier, when he did caricatures of King Louis Philippe, they ended up throwing him into prison uh uh the the uh folks in charge understood the power of these things and um and then sometimes the, they were not um you know they ran, they ran the range from imprisonment in the most in 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 the 19 in more recently the most famous Palestinian cartoonist Naji Al Ali was murdered on the streets of London coming down the stairs from his magazine office and they haven't yet solved that crime there are two rumors about it. One was that it was done by the Palestinians because he had been recently attacking Arafat, and and the word was that Arafat had commissioned it. The second rumor was that it was Israel's Mossad, Israel's secret police, that arranged his assassination because he was always attacking the Israelis. And uh, so you have murder. You have another Arab cartoonist, Ferzat, who had his hands broken. Uh, he was assaulted by a gang of people, of folks who objected to what he is doing. You have Daumier being incarcerated. You have a leading cartoonist in South Africa who cartoons under the name Zapiro, uh, who was uh, sued for many hundreds of millions of dollars, and his newspaper was for a cartoon which he did showing uh, Jacob Zuma, who is now the president of South Africa, raping um so raping someone so in the form of a woman, woman. Mm-hmm. so uh it's across the board or, or there is censorship that the, the, the these many different examples 
What conclusion do you say the you know what your interesting question you started out was what what gives these cartoons such power what uh, what are some conclusions you came to in in thinking through this Well I think you know first of all there is a whole new field and uh, of neuroscience and it is called neuroaesthetics where some experiments have been done on how the brain works which the neuroaestheticians argue this demonstrates the power of particularly of cartoons and caricatures uh for me that's a bit of a reach but i'll tell you about one of the experiments um the experiment involves herring gull chicks little little uh infant birds and the herring gull these chicks they get fed by pecking on their mother's beak and uh, their mother's beak is long and yellow and has a red, a little red uh, dot at the end of it. And uh, they, they subjected a group of herring gull chicks to a series of sticks that were imitations of mother's beaks. The longer the stick and the more dots that were on the end of it, the more avidly did the herring gull chicks peck at it. And what the neuroscientists, the neuroestheticians concluded from that was that the, 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 these herring gold chicks had been, that, that the stick, the long exaggerated stick was like a caricature in the sense that it exaggerated uh, in a grotesque way the reality and that made these chicks, something happened in their brain that made them more emotional, certain juices flowed. There were similar experiments with rats and squares and rectangles where the, the rats were attracted to the, were rewarded by going to the rectangle and uh, rather than the square. And again, they measured things going on in their brain. So I, uh, you know, I think it's a little reductionist to say that you can, through studying the brain, figure out why people react so powerfully to cartoons and caricatures. But I think it's related. And so what I look at is, is the three basic elements of the situation. The content of the cartoon itself, what its message is, the, uh, the power of the image, going back, as I mentioned earlier, to the no graven images that we find in the Old Testament and in the Koran as applied to Muhammad, and the brain itself, where you think of the cartoon as the stimulus and what happens in the brain as the response. And I think when you put all of that together, you begin to get a more sophisticated understanding of what's going on. There was a, a great um, art critic named Gombrich, uh, who put it very pithily when he talked about, he said the caricaturist is in the business of mythologizing the world by physiognomizing it, by showing faces. And what he was talking about there was, um, you know, you link the mythical with the real, you link the, char the characterist, caricaturist creates a fusion an amalgam that seems uh, so convincing to the emotional mind. And the example that is, one of the examples that's given is back when you could call a cabinet minister a parasite, but to make the charge visually, as the great cartoonist James Gilray did 
in his print of Prime Minister William Pitt as a toadstool growing on the crown is something else again. It's something that you don't forget if you recognize Pitt's face. <laughs> it's much more powerful than just saying that he's a parasite. Yeah, I believe I've seen that image. It's, it's, I think that's reproduced quite a bit. Yes. Uh, we are talking uh, with Victor Navasky. He's author of a new book, The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, perhaps you'd like to uh, tell us about your favorite political cartoon or cartoonist. Victor Navasky for the hour, the number 1-800-826-1495. We talked a little bit about uh, the, the danger that some cartoonists are in t- today, and, and uh, many of those in, uh, in, in the Muslim world. Is that, uh, nowadays, do you think, is that the most interesting place to, uh, to sort of study the, the effect that cartooning and caricaturing can have and the danger that that can present? Well, I think it's one of them, but I think, Different cultures express it in different ways, and uh, you know, and, and of course, content is very important in these things. I mean, I go, I did a study of the McCarthy period uh, called "Naming Names" and uh, of the Hollywood blacklist. And in that period, the most, the thing that summed it all up for me best was a cartoon that her block, the great Washington Post cartoonist, had done. And it shows a, a civil servant, and, there's a, and he's being fired. And, uh, they're, they're pointing him towards the door. He's being kicked out of his office. And he's protesting, and he's saying, but, but I'm an anti-communist. And the, and the caption underneath says, I don't care what kind of communist you are, you're fired. <laughs> and that captured the... Um, that captured the great fear that was going on at the time. And uh, it's interesting in this country where we talk about free speech, cartoonists who have been re- sort of second-class citizens have always been expected to uh, just reflect or illustrate the editorial policy of the paper they work for and to illustrate the editorial that goes with the cartoon. But her block got to such a point where they, the, the head of the paper in, in his day was supporting Eisenhower for president, and her block was for Stevenson. And so he, he stopped running him for a while, but the syndicate still carried his cartoons elsewhere, and he got so many protests about punishing her block by censoring him, by not running him, that her block was later under Catherine Graham when she inherited the post, they had a policy that enabled him to do whatever he wanted, regardless of what the editorial policy of the paper was. So there you recognize his power, the power of the visual language and imagery. It's interesting, it's somewhat related here, given what you just said. Doug Marlette, you quote him as saying that he noticed about, his, I guess, complaints about his cartoons. Democrats tend to complain, Republicans go to the publisher. Yes, you know. I mentioned before uh, how Nixon, how Herblock uh, permanently fixed the picture of Nixon with five o'clock shadow, but when I, but in the book I point out that you know maybe Nixon is a bad example because as Doug Marlett, the great cartoonist who ended up at Newsday, once said, uh, Nixon was to cartoonists what Marilyn Monroe was to sex. He looked like his policies. 
you could tell from his nose that he was going to invade Cambodia, he said. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, talking with Victor Navasky, Art of Controversy is the book. You're welcome to join the conversation, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Um, I wonder if we could maybe bring this up to date uh, to, to today. And, and uh, I was reading a review of, uh, of the book, generally positive, in the, uh, in the New York Times. They made reference to an uh, article in Slate, Farhad Manju, you're probably aware of this, he, he says, apparently, that in the era of John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, uh, etc., that uh, political cartoons as a form perhaps are a bit outdated. I wonder what your view is. Well, um, you know, every time a new medium comes along, people want to think that the old medium is going to disappear. When radio came along, they thought that print was going to disappear. When movies came along, they thought that radio was going to disappear. When television came along, they thought that movies were going to disappear. And somehow, the old medium doesn't disappear. It remains, but it, the, the others are add-ons to it. And I believe that even though it is a, almost a cliché today to say that cartoonists are an endangered species, I think that they not only are not going to disappear, but there is a new app that seems to be invented even as we're talking. There's probably a new one that's been invented every day. And uh, so cartoonists are finding their way on, into the online world. And, of course, you have literally cartoons, motion picture cartoons, and I, and I think that, as with all uh, new media, what happens is that the art form changes, sometimes accommodates itself to the new medium. So you, you get cartoons, not just next to editorials in print newspapers, but you get them online, you get them on apps, you'll find them on telephones, and I think uh, and Martin Luther King put them... Uh, in his leaflets that he handed out. You get them on billboards now. So I think they're going to be more omnipresent than they, than they ever were. We are talking with uh, Victor Navasky. He is uh, currently a professor in the Columbian, uh, Columbia rather, University Graduate School of Journalism. He's a longtime uh, editor and uh, publisher of uh, The Nation. And his new book is The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power. Mr. Nabowski made reference to one of his earlier books. I neglected to uh, say that you maybe uh, put uh, him in context. You uh, probably have read uh, Naming Names, which uh, in, uh, won the National Book Award. He's also author of A Matter of Opinion, which won the George Polk Book Award. His new book, The Art of Controversy. Um, and Victor Nabowski will be signing copies of his book at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, Friday, June 28th at 7 p.m. We're going to take a brief break. When we uh, come back, we'll ask Mr. Dabaski to uh, talk about some of his favorite uh, cartoons and uh, maybe tell us a story or two about uh, some of the cartoonists that he has personally known. And I'll ask him uh, what he thinks the job of a political cartoonist is. That's following the break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Sticking to a regular exercise schedule isn't easy. After all, there are plenty of potential hindrances, time, boredom, injuries, and self-confidence. But these issues don't need to stand in your way. Consider practical strategies for overcoming common barriers to fitness. Squeeze in short walks throughout the day. 
If you don't have time for a full workout, don't sweat it. Shorter spurts of exercise, such as 10 minutes of walking spaced throughout the day, offer benefits too. Choose activities you enjoy. You'll be more likely to stay interested. Remember, anything that gets you moving counts. Exercise with friends, relatives, neighbors, or coworkers. You'll enjoy the camaraderie and the encouragement of the group. Schedule exercise as you would schedule an important appointment. Block off times for physical activity and make sure your friends and family are aware of your commitment. Whatever you decide to do, stick with it and remember why you're doing it. Your heart will thank you. This is Dana for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Where does the enduring power of political cartoons and caricatures come from? Uh, that is a central question addressed in a new book by Victor Navasky. He, uh, his new book is called The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power. Uh, he uh, treats this question. We've uh, addressed that earlier in the program. And then uh, for much of the book, he, uh, he uh, gives us some snapshots of uh, some uh, prominent cartoonists and uh, examples of their work. And a very interesting book. Uh, Victor Navasky uh, currently is professor in the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. And he is coming to Salt Lake City on Friday, uh, the 28th of this month, uh, for an event at the King's English Bookshop. That is 7 o'clock in the evening, Friday, June 28th. So you get a chance to meet Mr. Navasky and, uh, and uh, have your book signed. And we're talking with him on the program today. You can, welc- you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can uh, join us by... Uh, Phone at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Have a couple of emails come in, and I'll, I'll run these past you, uh, Victor Navasky. Um, this is from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. He says, one of my favorite cartoons from the colonial era was Thomas Rowlandson's image of Europeans carving up the world like a fat turkey. I'm wondering if your guest has thoughts about Rowlandson. Yeah, Rowlandson was a great cartoonist, and along with Gilray and Hogarth, uh, they were, uh, everyone saw what they did, and again, um, it's, it's, I, it's hard over the phone to explain the, the beauty of what they did and, uh, and how powerful they were, and so... I won't try. Okay, yeah, that, that's the hard part over the radio. It's kind of, yeah. kind of hard to describe. Uh, nice to, to look at the book. Um, there are a lot of great illustrations uh, in the book. Um, we're talking about the power of political cartoons and their enduring power. Uh, we have another email. This is from Greg and Logan, uh, who says that he attaches his uh, favorite uh, political cartoon. This is the work of... Uh, Pat Bagley, who is a favorite cartoonist here in Utah, writes uh, or draws for the uh, Salt Lake Tribune. And uh, Greg's favorite, it's uh, wintertime, and you have uh, a donkey representing the Democrats, I assume, and a, and a elephant Republican, representing Republicans. They're moving in different directions with snow blowers, and they're blowing snow into each other's cleared-out path. Great. So that <laughs> that, that is Greg's favorite. You know, I, uh, that's one of those that goes after both sides, and, uh, which is fine. I t- maybe it's a comment on my character. I, I sort of seem to be drawn to those that go after a particular, that take a particular position as between the two sides. You know, I think of Herblock's cartoon 
of where there's a crowd waiting for Richard Nixon, and the caption on top says, "Here he comes now," and you see him emerging from a sewer with his suitcase. So, I should say about Pat Bagley um, here in Utah. Bagley's great. He's, yeah. He is uh, playing a major role at this cartoonist convention that I'm going to be out in. Oh, excellent! In Utah for so. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if you're familiar with some of his work. One of I think one of his contributions he's he's created this stereotypical Utah legislator uh, who is uh, white, middle class, somewhat overweight, and and so in Utah when we see one of those cartoons and he has this figure or a group of these figures we know immediately this is a Utah state legislator uh, it's kind of a you know a, a contribution he's made or or maybe if you're a part of the legislature you you don't like it but All right on the other hand I am white and middle class and I, my wife tells me I'm <laughs> overweight so maybe so I'm you, a Utah you, legislator you could you could be a Utah legislator that's right cuts many ways <laughs> that's that's right um uh, I wanted to ask you maybe some of your other favorite. You've talked about some favorite cartoons. Maybe you could tell us a few more. Sure. You know, in th- let me tell you how I came to write this book. In 30 years or more at The Nation magazine, only and The Nation magazine is a bastion of word people, only once did the staff march on my office with a petition demanding in advance that we not publish something. And it was a cartoon, a caricature by the late, great, David Levine, who does these mar- did these marvelous caricatures for the New York Review books. And uh, what it was about was David Levine had called me. I had known him because I used to publish my own little satire magazine long before when I was still in school, before I came to the nation. And David Levine was one of the people we discovered before the world discovered him. And he called me and told me that he had a cartoon that the, was too strong for the New York Review of Books, they, they told him they, they didn't want to publish it at the time. They would get around to it eventually. He didn't want to wait. And he described the cartoon as follows. He said, it shows Henry Kissinger, who at the time had just authored a report on the uh, Caribbean, and uh, it showed on Latin America, and it showed Kissinger, he said, screwing the world in the form of a woman's body, with a globe where her head would be under an American flag blanket. He said, are you interested? I said, David, I'm interested, but it's going to get me in a lot of trouble. He said, why will it get you in trouble? I said, I don't know why, but I know it will. So he sent the cartoon over, and the, the caricature of Kissinger was extraordinary. It On his face, was he was wearing these horn-rimmed glasses as he was doing whatever he was doing under the, the American flag blanket to the world's woman. On his face, as he looked up, was this look that mingled ecstasy and evil. And uh, so what happened was, it's a great cartoon, and, and I called a meeting of the staff. I invited David in to talk with us, and... Uh, and the main objection to the cartoon was from a young woman who was our assistant newsstand circulation manager, and she was a good feminist. And she said, the nation is supposed to be fighting against stereotypes, and this cartoon shows sex as something as a, that an active male on top does to, to a passive woman on bottom. And, and so, and, and she wasn't wrong about that. Although, to my way of thinking, it was the power of of Levine's cartoon and caricature that made it made it so objectionable <laughs> from that point of view. But I thought it was more important to publish it. And we had this discussion, and and 
it happens that on our staff at the time was the great British journalist, the late Christopher Hitchens, who spoke with a uh, upper-class British accent, wore a white suit, and he liked to play the office roué. And he said, well, that to him, this did not look like an act of sex. It looked like an act of rape. And the young woman uh, said, but if you look at the at the wrist of this woman on the mattress at 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 her hand, it looks to me like she's gripping the mattress with a grip of passion. And Christopher leaned over and gripped the young woman's wrist and said, trust me, my dear, it's not the grip of fashion. Well, all of that was part of a thing. And, and David Levine was, was shown no respect by the staff. And the world's one of the world's great cartoonists and, and caricaturists. And I asked him, David, are you sorry you came? And he said, no, because he'd been doing this for 25 years. Uh, and yes, he was working off of stereotypes, and he said all cartoonists work off of stereotypes, but that didn't mean that he was reinforcing them, he was using them, and, uh, but he had never had a serious discussion about his work as he had in, in the couple of hours that he was grilled by the nation's staff. So we ran the cartoon. We got some a lot of letters from fellow cartoonists supporting him and some letters attacking him. And and then the show traveled, uh, and then Columbia University, where I was not yet teaching, decided it wanted to celebrate the nation's 125th anniversary by running an art show. And the nation over the years had, you know, is America's oldest weekly magazine. It was started in 1865, the year the Civil War ended, and it it had these great artists like Ben Sean and William Gropper and. Uh, and so the Columbia people, art curator, went through thousands of pictures and narrowed them down to 40 and, and chose for the ex exhibit 40 pictures. And David Levine's was one of the 40. And then the exhibit traveled up to Harvard, and Harvard put the Levine caricature on its cover. So there we are. <laughs> you, you felt vindicated. Or, yeah. may, or maybe he did, yeah. Uh, I want to, you, you describe yourself uh, as a free speech absolutist, but we've talked about the, the case of this Danish paper. Uh, I wonder, it, are, are, are there limits? Are, are there cartoons that perhaps are too incendiary? Yeah, well, I am, you know, I think of my free, myself as a, what they call a free speech absolutist, and I am a believer and a card-carrying member of the American Civil Liberties Union among my sins, and a believer in what the German philosopher Habermas called the power of the better argument. So I just have always assumed that the way to fight bad arguments is with better arguments, and the way to fight bad speech is not to censor it, but with better speech. So what do you do when it turns out that pictures, in some cases, are more powerful than words? Uh, you know, I conclude that while... It is not my business to put people's lives at risk, and that might be one of the places you draw the line, that nevertheless, pictures with words or without them in the form of cartoons and caricatures are part of the free speech debate, and that may the, the, the best idea or the best depiction emerge victoriously, as it were. That doesn't mean that as an editor or as a uh, social observer, if I were living in Germany, I would hope I would not have run those 
caricatures on the uh, those anti-Semitic caricatures on the front page of the Sturmer that I would not run racist caricatures in in American public in a publication that I had responsibility for because uh, I think there is a, still the question of editorial discretion but in terms of the right to publish I think you do have the right should have the right to publish and to make those decisions on your own. And in fact, the Supreme Court, in a case involving the Reverend Jerry Falwell, decided that parody and caricature was a form of speech that ought to be protected. I wonder if you could talk just briefly about, you have it in the book, um, it, it, cartoons, caricatures, are, have been traditionally seen as lowbrow. But you have some uh, images of Goya, Picasso. Yes. I mean, Picasso is a really interesting case to me because he, uh, people think of him as this um, avant-garde, which he was, uh, artist of fine arts, but, when, but he really dealt with angles and, 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 and in a way that, and if you look at the anthologies of great caricaturists of our time, in some of them, he's excluded because they just assume he's a great artist and he has nothing to do with it. In others, he and Goya are both listed for their fine caricatures. And, that's, and, and the other interesting thing is that caricaturists are, um, can be subversive. And, and I think that Picasso was subversive of, of con- artistic conventions of his time and that he captured people from different perspectives where they would not recognize themselves. And so he, he especially in his early years, uh, literally was a caricaturist. Hmm. And you, you have a specific chapter. You talk about some of the things we have talked about, what, why the enduring power of cartoons. You single out caricature. Why is that? Uh, could you say that again? I'm yeah. Sorry. Why do you you have a specific chapter on caricature specifically? Yeah. Why do you single it out? I single it out because um, caricature is, as I said a little bit before, because by definition, it is so um, unfair and and even grotesque, and yet the the caricatures have a history of getting the caricaturist in the most in more trouble than any other form of cartoon on a regular basis because people don't like to see themselves in the way the caricaturist sees them and whether it is um whether it is doug marlette doing nixon or whether it is Daumier doing King Philippe. The, the, there, Daumier had a publisher named Philippon, and Philippon was also, like Daumier, indicted because they showed the king of the day as a pear, in a pear shape, and he, and he became known as Le Poire. And, and Le Poire, in addition to meaning pear in French, meant fathead at the time and the king and his deeply resented it and uh and even though this king lifted censorship and was said to abolish it he abolished it for everything except cartoons and except uh pictures and cartoons and because he understood his power so when philippon was put on trial what he did was he came to the stand with four different pictures one showed a pair 
just a, a regular pear, a piece of fruit. A second showed a pear with some uh, dots in the around where the at the top and a sort of circle uh, at the bottom, uh, a half circle at the bottom that could be eyes or a, a nose or a uh, mouth, and then a third with a little more detail, and then a fourth, the actual cartoon of King Philippe, Louis Philippe. And he, he said to the jury, which, which should I be thrown into jail for? Should I be thrown into jail for the picture of the pair? <laughs> but that's what <laughs> pairs are. Should I be thrown into jail? And then he goes through each of the pictures and says, if you, if you throw me into jail for one, you have to throw us, everyone who ever does a picture of a pair into jail, because that's where it comes from. So he, he dissected the anatomy of drawing a cartoon while defending the principle of caricature. Hmm. We uh, just have maybe a minute left. I just wanted to mention at the end here, I just thought about this during the program, one of my very favorite uh, cartoons. This is a Pat Bagley cartoon, and it, uh, I guess it is an example of n- not a political point of view, but capturing the feelings of an entire community uh, at the end of the Elizabeth Smart saga, when she was uh, found again, there's a famous picture where her mother is leading her, uh, to, you know, she's following her mother to the car, and she's home again. And Pat Bagley uh, captured this beautifully, sort of recapturing that photo. And the only color in the photo is is uh, is the blue ribbon in Elizabeth Smart's hair, which which was the symbol of of hope. And there's a there's a quote from Emily Dickinson at the bottom about the enduring power of hope. Um, and that's an example, I suppose, of, of the power of uh, cartoons to capture the feelings of, a, of an entire community. Yes, and you could do it, as you say, with no color, and you can do it with very minimal lines, which is another um, aspect of caricature and cartoons. I run a, a, a cartoon by a, a woman who was a children's book writer named Carla Cuskin, and she did something called The Rocky Road Upward about these two little boys and one was a rich little boy and very handsome and the other was a poor little boy and it was Nixon and Kennedy and by the end she shows and one marries this most beautiful woman in the world and the other marries plain Pat one gets to drink champagne the other gets to eat hamburgers and uh, and then she goes all the way up and she says at the end the rich little boy went on to be president of the United States and the poor little boy went home to his wife his plain wife Pat this was at the time, she she did it. That was the truth of it. And then her punchline is, think it over, Horatio Baby. But the fact is, the caricature she does of them, she does Kennedy with just the shock of hair and Nixon with the widow's peak and captures them totally through, through that, that little detail. We are going to have to leave the conversation there. We've been talking with Victor Navasky. He's currently a professor of... Uh in the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. The book is The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power. And uh, Victor Navasky will be at the King's English Bookshop uh, Friday, June 28th, 7 o'clock in the evening. Victor Navasky, thank you so much. Great to talk with you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking with uh, Maximilian Werner, a Salt Lake City-based writer. His uh, new book is called Evolved, Adventures of a Pleistocene Mind. He'll be appearing at the King's English Bookshop uh, coming up as well. Maximilian Werner tomorrow. And for producers uh, Haley Housley and uh, Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. This is Utah Public Radio.
KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan.